what we're going to talk about is that you can know whether or not you're born again. Um, there are people that have had just incredibly powerful born-again experiences that were real, and they know it. There's other people like myself. I, I quite frankly, don't know when I actually got born again. I, I don't know when that happened, but I know that it did happen, and I know how I can know that it happened. And there's other people that have had powerful experiences that they've associated with being born again that probably weren't actually born again when they had those experiences. And I wouldn't even argue that those experiences weren't with God. I believe that they were with God. But they didn't result in a person actually having been born again. So the next few weeks, what we're going to talk about is how you can know whether or not you're born again. And we'll start with the answer, and then we'll work back through some of these other scriptures to give you some indication of what the the Lord is trying to say through First Corinthians eight one and two, or excuse me, First Corinthians six nine and following First Corinth or Romans eight one and two and James two maybe fourteen. I forget exactly where that one is at. Let's start then in Second Corinthians thirteen and verse five. The Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth is explaining to them that it's important that you would examine yourselves, that you would do something to to get a sense for whether or not you're actually in the faith. And that's what he says. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Now, he, he stresses the need to do that, because as Kim and Teresa talked about last week, if you don't tend that garden of your mind, you have an enemy who's constantly, constantly, constantly wanting to barrage you with flaming arrows and get you to accept things that aren't true as though they were true. And if you're not careful to keep that garden um, tilled, then you can find yourself in the place where the enemy has sown lies into your mind that become your biblical truth. And over time, you could end up actually having walked away from the Lord and have no sense that you did it. So it's important that we would constantly be I mean, not like every single day constantly, but that we would have a sense that we should be aware of how we would know and then testing ourselves so that we would know. Um, Paul says that you should do it, but he doesn't give you a good sense for how you do it there in Second Corinthians 13. And one of the things I love about the Apostle John's writing, the gospel and the letters and even the book of Revelation, is he has this intimacy with Jesus that, that comes through in his writings. If you read the beginning of 1 John or you read kind of the end of the Gospel of John, you can see these words like, you know, I'm telling you what I know because I, I experienced Jesus, I touched Jesus, I, I heard his voice, I was with him. And he has this writing style that reflects that intimate relationship with Jesus. And he says at the end of his Gospel, in chapter 20, not, not at the very end of his Gospel, but near the end, Verses 30 and 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. So when you read the Gospel of John, if you start at the back, you figure out what he's trying to accomplish. These are Jewish people. They are uh, conscious that there is going to someday be this Messiah, Christ in the Greek, and that he's coming. And John wrote his gospel so that people would know. You don't have to wonder. You can be certain that this one Jesus is that one Messiah that was prophesied before. So in the gospel, he writes so that you can know who 
the Christ or the Messiah is. And then in 1 John, he writes so that you can know who you are. So he says in, uh, towards the end of the, the, the epistle, 1 John, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So what we're going to study next are the things that he's written so that you can test against these things and know that you actually have eternal life or that you don't. And and it's glorious either way because if you test against his truths and you find out that you don't, then you have a choice to make, that's all. You, you might have thought you made the choice, but you didn't actually. Maybe you weren't sincere or you didn't realize it, but now you know because he's showing us how we can know. Or you can actually make the choice for the first time and decide whether or not you want the eternal life that's offered in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 7, the principle is laid out by Jesus himself. He says in verse 15 through 20, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A tree cannot, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will know them by their fruits. So Matthew says that you can tell by a person's fruit or in this case, a false prophet by his fruit, but the the principle is true across the board. But he doesn't really give a good understanding of what those fruits are. Like Paul says, you should test yourself, but he doesn't give you a good sense for how. Matthew says the same thing. Good fruit equals good tree. Bad fruit equals bad tree. Good tree can't make bad fruit. Bad fruit can't make good tree. Or uh, bad, you know what I mean. Thank you. (laughs) So then let's go to 1 John, which is where where the the essence of this teaching is going to come from. What you're going to hear is that you can tell if you are born again because the practice of sin is absent from your life. You can tell that you're not born again because the practice of sin is present in your life. You can tell that you're born again because the practice of righteousness is in your life. And I'm going to extend myself a little bit on the practice of righteousness because it appears, and, and we'll, we'll see where Jesus demonstrates this, but it appears the absence or the presence of the practice of sin is the indicator that, that's most likely to tell you. But he says specifically that the practice of righteousness would indicate that you're righteous. Here's where I'm stretching myself. I, I don't think you should take this as doctrine. This is just me thinking out loud that there are people who demonstrate tremendous acts of righteousness that don't know the Lord at all. And the difference between the righteousness, that righteousness indicating that they are actually righteous and a believer's works indicating that they are actually righteous is where those righteous things are born from. So a person like Bill Gates, and, and I don't know, but I don't think Bill Gates is a believer. Let's just assume he's not. He is doing righteous things all over the world. There are people that would die of starvation that are having food to eat, that would die of um, 
dehydration, but have water to drink because his philanthropy is digging wells in Africa and feeding hungry people and doing all kinds of amazingly righteous things, but it's not born from the seed of righteousness that's inside God's children. So where that righteousness is birthed from actually is what would cause us to know whether or not that is righteousness that indicates born again or if that's righteousness that's just from self, okay? All right, so the reason I said all that is because I want to start in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, what I believe John, or God through John, is speaking of here is what I would call for our purposes the occasion of sin. The occasion of sin. The, the occasional sin. He, he's, I believe he's talking to Christians because he's addressing his readers as we and ourselves. So he's, he's put himself in that group that he's speaking to. He didn't say you, which would make it a little harder for us to know who he's talking to, but because he includes himself, and we're all pretty confident that the Apostle John was born again, right? I mean, you know, maybe not Peter. It's hard to know. He denied Jesus three times, but we're pretty sure John was on the up and up with the Lord. So when he says we and ourselves, that's an indication that he's including himself. Therefore, he's speaking to born-again people. So when we think that a a born-again person... Uh, won't sin, he's saying you will sin. It certainly should be your objective to never sin. And I I personally believe, again, I I don't know if you want to write this as doctrine, but Romans teaches pretty powerfully that a Christian could live a sinless life because they're no longer a slave to sin. The the devil's power is no longer over them. And and that's going to be one of the cool things that we're going to see from the scriptures that you read this week and we talk about next week. So it's possible that a Christian could live in a a sinless life, but it's very improbable. So just first thing, Christians can sin. And if we do, God has made a mechanism for us to get free of that unrighteousness and to be forgiven by just confessing those sins to him. All right. Now, that's the occasion of sin. Fast forward to chapter 3. I'm going to read to you verses 4 through 10, and this is where we're going to spend pretty much all our time this morning. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So there's a direct connection that we're going to see again in Roman, or in Matthew chapter 7 between sin and lawlessness. When you see the word lawlessness, it's the same as you saw the word sin and vice versa because they're used kind of interchangeably. You know that he appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins, and in him, Jesus, there is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, sins. No one who sins has seen him, Jesus, or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
Remember, this letter was written so that you would know whether or not you have the eternal life, which would mean you are born again, which would mean that God's spirit dwells inside of you, which is the seal of your salvation. When, if we could look, like if we had like spiritual, I don't know, goggles we could put on, we could look at people. And in the church, we'd probably find lots of people who that little light would be on, that they truly were born again, and other people who you would never in a million years guess that they weren't, but that light's not on. Holy Spirit's not in there. They may call themselves Christians. They may think with all their heart that they're Christians, but the definition of Christian isn't somebody that goes to a Christian church or believes Christian truths. It's the person that's actually been regenerated in a new birth by the Holy Spirit, and that spirit then lives inside of them, and that is a Christian. The person that would die, and in that very minute, would stand before the Lord and be welcomed into his eternal heaven versus the person who would die and stand in front of the Lord and not be welcomed into his eternal heaven. That's the difference between Christian and not Christian, and that's what he's trying to help us to understand here. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And there's three concepts that I want you to see here. There's positional righteousness, and there's practical righteousness. Okay? Um... Alex Morones, stand up just a minute. We're going to get Alex wet in a couple minutes here today. Just stay one second. Alex, um, gosh, I don't know now, it's been about a week and a half, was not positionally righteous. He might have done some righteous things in his life, right, and, and, and whatever, but he wasn't positionally righteous. When, when God the Father looked at him, he didn't see a righteous man, he saw an unrighteous man because he was dead in his sin. And then Alex heard the gospel. Alex responded to the gospel. And, and just so you know, I mean, shh, don't tell my daughter this, but she wanted to have a relationship with this guy. I don't want, I remember I said my goal for my daughter, you know, she'd be the best nun ever. I told her, not if he's not a Christian. He's a wonderful man. He sat with me. I mean, he, it just really been a, it's a great testimony. I'll, I'll share it with everybody someday when I get permission. But the point is, he can't have a relationship with my daughter unless he's a Christian because he's not safe, because he doesn't have God's seed inside of him. He can still practice sin, and I'm concerned for that. So I'm telling him the gospel, and he's awesomely listening, and we're at the point where he's going to start to respond to the gospel. And all of a sudden, I start thinking, man, how am I going to know? That guy could say all the words just right, and I can't tell him he can't see my daughter now, you know, because my hook would be gone. So I started praying. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I asked. You failed the test. Get away from my daughter. <laughs> you can sit down now. Thanks. So I started praying. I said, Lord, i got to have a sign because I told her and I told him that born again, yes, not born again, no. And um, he starts responding. And now, I'm not a guy given to tears, but <laughs> I said, Lord, please, you've got to let me know because I can't say no. And if he didn't get born again, then he's still dangerous. And as he starts to respond to the gospel and offer his life to Jesus, I get this overwhelming sense of God coming over me to the point where I'm literally going to start weeping, which, you know, in my madness, I choked it back. But I think I a little bit did. And he gave me a sign. Oh, he, seriously, God's awesome, right? Yeah, he didn't because he's 100% all man. Me, you know, not all there. But the point is, God is so faithful that when we respond to the gospel, he let me know, and, and he isn't who you used to know. If you knew him two weeks ago, 
you need to reintroduce yourself because he's not who he used to be. Okay, amen. Let's move on. Three things. The first, there's positional righteousness. So in that instant, when he sincerely met the requirements of the gospel and came into covenant with God, his relationship was restored and he became positionally righteous before God. Now when God looks at him, he doesn't see if Alex made a mistake or committed a sin five years ago or five seconds ago. He sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus, when he looks at Alex Moroni's. He's become positionally righteous. Doesn't matter whether he which he's never going to do. But if he ever commits a sin, it doesn't matter because positionally, positionally, he's righteous before God. His behavior has nothing to do with his positional, somebody say righteousness, righteousness before God. Now, the other thing is practical righteousness. The, The word says that the one who practices righteousness is righteous. So there's some practice of righteous things that will start to emanate from Alex's life that won't come from him being a good Bill Gates. It's going to come from that seed of righteousness that's inside of him. And he will begin to be a person who practices righteousness, which will be a sign to him and to anybody who's intimate enough to watch him that he's actually positionally righteous. And here's the thing you've got to get. Alex didn't get righteous because he did righteous stuff. Nobody can become righteous before God by doing righteous stuff because that would be then self-righteousness. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, not one is righteous. I think is the right word. The only way that he could become righteous before God was to humble himself before God, give his life to Jesus, trust in Jesus as the sacrifice for his sins. And then he is resurrected into righteousness. So he didn't become righteous because he did righteous things. He does righteous things because he is righteous. You get that distinction? It's really, really important for, for the rest of what we're going to talk about. You can't hear a thing that says, uh-oh, I'll give you a, a head start. James, oh, sorry. <laughs> Turn the clock so I can't see it. Uh, you just can all be mad at me. Nobody gets lunch today. Think about what James says. James says, faith without works is dead. You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Why? Because his works, his righteousness, is the indication that he had saving faith. This person has faith, but they have no works. What does that say? They didn't have saving faith because the righteous produce righteousness. So this person who has a faith, but it wasn't saving faith, and has no works, that's the indication that they weren't ever righteous before God. So a person sees, oh, faith without works is dead. I have no works, but I have faith. I need to get works. What they're doing is they're trying to become self-righteous. And you can't get righteous before God on yourself. So the, the thing that James is trying to indicate to people is if you have faith that didn't bring works with it, you need faith. You don't need works. Because the works can't get you to righteousness. Only faith can get you to righteousness. So what he's saying is, you can tell I have faith because I have works. If you don't have works, you don't have faith. Don't start doing works. Get faith. Amen. Okay. Yeah, now you don't have to come next week. You can have a long lunch, breakfast, brunch, the whole thing. All right. That's one. Practical righteousness. Positional righteousness. Does that make sense? You get it? Okay. Slow down. I've already mentioned this, but the one who is righteous, practicing righteousness, the source is from 
righteousness. It's not from, I want people to think I'm a good guy. I don't want to be honored. I don't want to be worshipped. None of those things. That's not a righteous cause to do righteousness. Only righteousness that we do is that which is born from the righteousness that's inside of us. Remember, and eh, I'm not going to go there. Sorry. Forget that, that I didn't already say. Okay, got it. Okay, that's first one. Second, there's a difference between occasional sin and the practice of sin. We know that's true because for a Christian, he said at the beginning, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you sin and you confess it to God, he's faithful and righteous or faithful and just, depending on your translation, to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So we know that a Christian can have occasional sin, but we know from what we just read that a Christian cannot practice sin. So there is a difference between the occasion of sin and the practice of sin. When you're looking to the example that he gives us in 1 John, and this is, the, this is like if you leave dissatisfied after this whole thing, this is what your dissatisfaction is going to be. I don't know where the line is between the, the occasional sin and the practice of sin. I don't know if it's 10 and now you're practicing, if it's 100 and now you're practicing, 1,000 and now you're practicing. But there's a line that you can cross, and it might be that the line is different. You know, there might be a grace for some people because of the circumstances of their lives that God gives them a little extra grace. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not saying you want to hang your hat on that, but what I'm saying is there's a very substantial difference between the occasion of sin and the practice of sin. A Christian can have the occasion of sin. A Christian cannot have the practice of sin because of what he just said. Okay. Look at the language that he uses. Verse um, 6, no one, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. No one. If I was Pastor Jim, it would be like his always thing. You know, what does always mean in the Greek? Always, right? No one, nobody, nobody who abides in Jesus sins. And and when he says sins, he's, he's talking about the practice of sin because we already know that the occasion of sin could be present, right? Nobody, nobody who abides in Jesus practices sin. And no one who practices sin, who sins continually, has seen him or knows him. Verse 7, he says, don't be deceived. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Don't be deceived. If you're practicing sin, you don't belong to Jesus. If you're not practicing sin, you do belong to Jesus. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. You know, forgive me for the young people that are in the room, but the one that always comes to my mind, you know, predominantly in a male context is pornography. If there's a person who is having the regular practice of looking at pornography and they come to church on Sundays and they serve and they do all kind of stuff and whatnot, but that practice is in their life, guess what? Bad sign. The practice of sin means that they're of the devil. They might seem like a great guy, but if that's the practice of their life, according to what the Bible says, they don't have the light turned on on the inside. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. 
because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. I got permission from Alex to, to use him as a sermon example. And I shared some of this stuff with some pretty substantial believers after Alex got born again. And they're like, well, you better watch him around your daughter. And I'm like, I don't have to. I am anyway, but I don't have to. <laughs> I'm really not. You know why? Because I shared the gospel. He responded to the gospel. I asked God for a sign. God gave me a sign. He's born again. Now, he's different. He's, I mean, you might have been a great guy before, but you're a better guy now. He can't sin. It's impossible. They're like, no, 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 he's a baby Christian. I'm like, there's no qualifications about baby Christian in here. It says if God's seed abides in him, he cannot practice sin. And that's where I'm hanging my hat because I love her. I mean, I love her so much. And the thought of, I mean, you know, I I guess it was unreasonable to expect she'd never have a boyfriend. But (laughs) it's hard for me because I can't protect her, you know. But I don't have to protect her. Why? Because God took and put his seed inside that young man. And because his seed is in there, I don't care. You might have been a bum. For all I know, don't, I really don't know. But you know what? It don't matter. It doesn't matter. That's bad English. It does not matter because God's seed is inside of him. And he can't sin. He can't. It's awesome. If you're born again, you know, and the devil's been lying to you, it's like you, you aren't that person you used to be. It doesn't matter what thoughts are in your head. None of that means anything because God's seed is inside of you. You cannot practice sin. And if we in the church, we, you know, we run around, oh, you know, boy, I'm really struggling with this. Yeah, I'm struggling with that. Me too, me too. Oh, and we're talking about all this sin that's in our lives and we've dumbed down our understanding of what the Bible teaches, then the reality is we're a whole bunch of people that aren't saved. No problem just get saved, right? I mean, it's not like, oh, I mean, you know, I'm going to go to hell. I wish you never told me this. I would rather just not know. No, it's no big deal. But in the church, we got to start having the expectation of one another that we are holy as he is holy, and we are going to walk in holiness and righteousness of the truth, and that's because it's who we are. It's not giving place to that lying, stinking devil telling us that we're just a sinner saved by grace. Oh, you know, my one of my best racquetball buddies, I can't even talk to him. He's, he's, he's a loves the Lord guy, but he tells me, you sin more before your feet hit the floor in the morning, you know, a thousand more than you even, and I'm like, I don't think that's me anymore. I can't, I can't reconcile that with the scriptures because he says, if God's seed is inside of me, I can't live that way. Not that I won't, not that I don't want to, but I cannot. All right, let me just kick that horse a little bit. He's all the way dead. No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him or her and he or she cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 10, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. They're obvious. How? One practices righteousness and one doesn't. One practices sin and one doesn't. If you could look close enough, it would be obvious. The thing you can see is yourself. All right. Here's your takeaways for today. Next week we'll build on this. There's two indications of relationship with God. The practice of righteousness and the practice of sin. That's all he gives us. That's all we need. 
and practice. Good fruit, bad fruit, that's it right there. You can tell a tree by its fruit, good tree, bad tree, righteousness, and sin. You've got to be careful with the practice of righteousness because if it's not born from righteousness, then it's not the righteousness that he's talking about here. Okay. Now, because that's true, there are two responses to sin depending on a person's relationship with God. Remember, two indications of whether you have a relationship with God, righteousness or sin, the practice, not the occasion, but the practice of sin. That's how you can know if you actually have a saving, saved relationship with God. There's two responses to sin depending on your relationship with God. This is, this is the gist of the whole thing, depending on your relationship with God. If you're a Christian and you experience or produce the occasion of sin, what's your response? And confess. That's exactly right. That's what he told us in chapter 1, verse 9. He said, if you sin, or maybe when you sin, confess your sin. God will forgive you, (laughs) cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you're not a Christian and you have an issue with sin, let's say you think you're a Christian and you have a sin, you confess it. But what if you're not really a Christian and you start to see the indication of the practice of sin? And, and because you think you're a Christian, you would confess and repent. No good. doesn't help you at all. You don't need to confess and repent. What do you need? To get saved, right? So the response to sin is based upon your relationship with God. If you're a Christian and you sin, you confess your sin. You repent from your sin. God forgives you, cleanses you of unrighteousness. But if you're not a Christian, you don't confess and repent, which is kind of part of what you do. But you need to get born again because then the practice of sin will leave your life because that's what the word says. So the reason why this is important, and once we understand, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, is so you can understand how to respond to your sin. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You have no eternal obligation to the law. Isn't that crazy? You can sin... And it has no eternal ramifications, none whatsoever. But if you're not a Christian, your sin eternally separates you from God. And once you've been separated, which you really are at birth, the continuation and practice of your sin heaps wrath on you for the day of wrath. So not only have you then separated yourself from God by your sin, but the more you continue to sin causes your eternal wrath of God to be worse and worse and worse and worse. Your penalty is worse because your sin is worse. Okay. Romans 8 at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 6 starting in 9, James 2, I think it's 14, I don't remember. Now, push the reset button. Just for five minutes I want to talk about baptism. Some of it I've really already talked about, but we're going to baptize a couple of folks. Alex just got born again a week or so ago. Patty Carter's going to get baptized, but her initial baptism was as a child. And, and um, I don't think a child, not, you know, not that you should never baptize a child. I'm, I'm not that crazy about it personally, but a child has a hard time, I think, having the maturity to understand the magnitude of their sin, the magnitude of the sacrifice that was made for their sin, and the magnitude of what it means to die to yourself and be resurrected in Christ. So Patty, understanding that now, you know, she's, She's clearly born again. She has tremendous fruit in her life. But she wants to make that statement now as an adult because she understands what it is that she'll be saying. 
So baptism is, um, is a public identification with Christ. Um, and, and it's really important that it, it contains the identifying with his lordship and rule over a person's life. That when I get baptized, I'm telling the world that I'm no longer king of my life, that Jesus is the king of my life, that I have surrendered myself to his headship. It's that I recognize his sacrifice that was made on my behalf and, and that I'm literally dying to myself and being resurrected into his sacrifice and that I um, have not only recognized it, but I've placed my faith and my trust in that he really was the absolute 100% complete and acceptable sacrifice for my sin to God. And then what is baptism? It's, it's a representation of a complete submersion or going into Christ himself. See, there's a baptism that happened with Alex, you know, 10 days ago when, when he made that sincere confession of faith. He was baptized. We know, when we think of baptism, we think of an in and an out because we do it in water and, you know, you're born again, but you don't get gills. So you actually, you know, yeah, I'll let you out. I mean, I was wondering if I was strong enough to keep him down, but he's a pretty husky guy. He might be able to scratch his way out of there. There's a going down and a coming up. But the, the baptism, the word baptism is to be immersed. There's no real sense of coming out in the word. So initially he was baptized. His initial baptism was into the body of Christ. He became a member of Christ's body. He's a literal part of Jesus Christ as, as the rest of us that have given our lives to Jesus and trusted in his work for our salvation. Are, we're now all members of one body. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one grieves, we all grieve together because we're one, united in spirit, in physical body of Jesus, spiritually. And that happened to him. That first baptism was into Jesus. And now this baptism is going to show Alex. Alex is going to be declaring to you, and Patty, going to be declaring to you their death and that they've died. They, I'm, a, I'm a dead person. Alex doesn't exist anymore. Patty doesn't exist anymore. I'm being resurrected in Jesus Christ, a new person. And I won't read all these scriptures to you so we can get out there quicker, but Jesus himself says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess them before my Father and the angels in heaven. But whoever should deny me before men, I will deny them. So there are going to be people on that day of judgment that are going to stand before the Lord expecting to go in, but they never actually confess Jesus. He, he, this confession has to be sincere and public. It's not a private thing. You don't have private Jesus and then you run around your whole life hoping that your pals don't notice that you're a Christian. No, you've disassociated yourself with every part of your life that doesn't associate itself with the truth that is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.23, I'm going to read it to you in two translations because they use a little bit different words. 1 Peter 1.23 in the New King James Version, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Uh, the same verse in the New American Standard, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imp not which of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. So, it's not, um, it's not like a, a mythical thing or something that, you know, a cool thing. No, it's a literal thing. See, when Alex was conceived, when Patty was conceived, it was of corruptible seed, corrupted seed, not even corruptible, perishable, 
corrupted seed. It can't live forever. It, it's, 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 it's already stained and corrupted. That brought with it a nature, a, a filthy, sinful nature that cannot be submitted, cannot not be submitted to the power of sin. But you see, upon that confession of faith, Alex and Patty died. And they weren't conceived of that same corrupted, perishable seed. They were conceived by the Holy Spirit, as was Jesus in Mary's womb, conceived of the Spirit of God, imperishable and non-corrupted seed that is eternal forever. So when, when Alex symbolically and Patty symbolically comes out of that water, you've got to know that is not who went in. Because they died, the Spirit of God came in, they were born again of that perfect, incorruptible, eternal seed and risen up in Christ Jesus, a new creation. Amen? Okay, so just let me re- revisit a couple of scriptures. Oh, actually, all of them are from 1 John. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. See, they have been born of God, practices sin, because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born again, born of God. 1 John 5, 4. Who, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then 1 John 5, 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let me put names to this. We know that no one who is born of God sins. We know that Alex, who is born of God, does not sin. But he, Jesus, who was born of God, keeps him, Alex, and the evil one does not touch him. We know, yes, Alex, we know that Patty is born of God and cannot sin. But Jesus, who was born of God, keeps Patty, and the evil one does not touch Patty. Amen, amen, amen. So, not so much probably Patty because she's known the Lord for a long time. Again, I don't know your past, but anybody, anybody, you know, this, we're a big church today because of you. Thank you, Alex. I love talking to lots of people. If you have any history with Alex, you need to push the reset button on your brain because that guy doesn't exist anymore. I mean, if there were some good stuff, you can say amen and praise God. But, but anything that doesn't look like Jesus that ever came from that guy, if you're a Christian especially, you need to get before the Lord and ask for the grace to forget all that stuff because you don't know this guy and you should come to know this guy because if he's good enough to date my daughter, he ain't a bad guy. <laughs> Honestly, so nice. Okay, I'll be done here. Thank you very much. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you you for stirring your body. I I say amen to every person that got up here and read a scripture that, that shared a revelation. You know, church, 1 Corinthians says that's what church looks like. Church looks like the saints empowered by the Spirit coming with a psalm and a revelation, a prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation, all these things, the body, not the guy who, who stands up and, and preaches the sermon and every, everybody else's job in church is to just listen. And, and I know that that's not practical in giant churches so much, but the biblical model says that when we gather together as saints that you have empowered your church to edify and build up and strengthen the body. And the guy up front, the pastor, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the teacher, his only purpose is to 
enable, to teach, to build up the church for doing the work in the service of the church. So God, I praise you for every word that was given today. I praise you for the message in tongues and the interpretation. I praise you because there are people that you were speaking to through the scriptures that were read. And we say thank you so much and we ask for more, please. More, please, more, please. And now, Lord, as we go and we baptize Patty and we baptize Alex, we just thank you for the sacrifice that was made on their behalf that would allow this even to happen. That if it were not for a perfect and spotless lamb to be offered on behalf of our sin, there would be no resurrection in Christ. So we just honor you and we praise you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you are perfect and spotless, and we thank you that you drew them to your son, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the horse trough is across the parking lot. We'll get them